Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. <laughs> well, as odd as it is to listen to uh, Peter introduce the show by, on a recording, as well as the fact that he's going to be on today, um, welcome to this edition of V Radio. If this is your first time tuning in to V Radio, please check out my website, v or v-radio.org. There you can find more archives of shows like this one, interviews with documentary filmmakers, politicians, the few good ones, activists, uh, scientists and uh, all kinds of different great roundtable discussions here on V Radio. Um, also, obviously, now we're going to be bringing on my guests. So, welcome, Peter, back to V Radio. Hey, Neil, how you doing, everybody? Not too bad at all. It's good to hear from you again. Um, yeah. So, today, obviously, we're going to be talking about your culture and decline project. And um, what I wanted to ask, you know, uh, first of all, was uh, what made you decide to do this? Well, basically, I'm not going to be doing documentary films for quite a while. And the new film series I'm starting, well, which I was hoping to start by now, but given current delays, both financial with other projects, I haven't been able to do much with it. But I have a new film project that's gestural. It's, uh, it's live action. It's not documentary. And I wanted to find a way to keep the documentary concept and keep the documentary uh, importance, the gesture of documentaries and how they're able to you know, bring things home very rapidly as opposed to the other gesture I'm going for with the new series. So since I've closed the Zeitgeist film series with a trilogy, and, and again, I'm not going to be doing documentary, at least not in a traditional sense anymore, at least for a while, Culture Decline is my way of continuing the style in a different gesture, of course, since it's, it's designed to be pseudo-satirical, but to, to keep hitting important points, cultural, both temporal and historical, and keep that feel going without having to make more documentaries in and of themselves. All right, excellent. You know, I definitely like the first episode. I mean, I guess uh, maybe you could comment a little bit on what made you decide to do this rather than working on Beyond the Pale. Well, to, just to clarify, Beyond the Pale, and unfortunately, unfortunately, I've been a little a little lazy with this because I know people are expecting Beyond the Pale. Originally, Beyond the Pale was going to be titled Beyond the Pale. It's actually not. There's a whole new series coming in. I'm going to be updating all the websites soon. So the new the new series, which I'm not going to announce yet is much more complex uh, than anything I've done before. It's Again, it's a live-action feel, so I'm, I'm going for a gesture here. It's, I'll summarize it this way, though, before I answer your question. Essentially, all the gestural elements you saw with Zeitgeist, the movie, addendum, and moving forward from the guy with the suitcase to the woman with the tear to the big multi-consciousness rotating color spectrum eyeball and all that stuff that sort of came into those works over time that became signature elements I'm ripping all of those ideas out, not not explicitly, but the gesture of the ideas, and I'm making an entire film series based on this. And that's uh, that's mm-hmm. where I am with that. It's it's enormously complex with the way I want to do it and its originality and and the actors I'm choosing to be a part of it. So that that's that's what's been keeping me behind because I've had to really shift ultimately my whole kind of artistic view of what I'm doing in this film medium again, which is always foreign to me. I I know I've run it into the ground other interviews but I never really considered myself a filmmaker up until now. <laughs> which is why right. the new film the new film is going to be really what I want it to be. I I've uh, not to harp on it, but documentary filmmaking is not easy. I know you've done dabble, dabble and stuff like that. I know tons of others. Mm-hmm. And it, it was it, moving forward was such an enormous uh trial on on so many levels to get that thing together. And it never really hit the point that I wanted it to, uh, to be perfectly honest, with certain gestural uh, overlays that I wanted in it, even though I think it works very well and I would never change it. 
But uh, ultimately, I'm, I'm spreading the horizon. I want to use the gesture of, of aesthetic a little bit more intently, and hopefully this new concept will, will spark the same type of revolution of thought, if you will, uh, not to go on a tangent, but the new film series essentially is going to take the audience and bring them into the film to the extent that they're going to identify so so well with these characters and what they're doing and the change that is denoted under the surface. I'm not going to go into any details. That they, the identification is so strong that they really begin to feel it. And, of course, that goes in line with the Zeitgeist Media Festival that we just had. And ultimately, with all the intellectual stuff you and I and everybody in the Zeitgeist Movement, for example, have done, I've watched over the course of, of years what, what that has done to plant seeds, and it's been very powerful on one side, but on another side, it tends to go above people's heads. They, they don't have a groundwork with a lot of these very simple sustainability concepts, whether it's cultural sustainability, whether it's ecological sustainability. They don't feel it right. They, they're so biased and so turned around by the current market monetary economy that we have to try something else. And if there's anything that I am, it's an experimenter. And so culture and decline, back to that point, the first episode, very establishment. I tried to bring on, you know, the democracy issue, as you saw, and I'm sure people that are listening saw as well. Uh, but as the series progresses, it's going to get a little bit more uh, unexpected. And I have a, a whole outline of this thing uh, to where I'm going to bring things in that people would not expect to be brought up taboo-wise. Uh, it's not there for shock value. I still think it's very, very seriously, even though even though I'm trying to give it an entertainment attribute that I'm not really used to. You might have seen that dabble in moving forward with the classroom scene and the, yeah. and the big joke. All those jokes that I kind of threw in there that I thought pulled off pretty well, I'm basically building that gesture into this series uh, and expanding upon it. But the next the next episode, which is October first, I, unfortunately I can't produce it any faster. I have no budget, no time, but I, I do want to keep these, this thing going. So it's bi-monthly at the moment. But the next one is probably going to deal with the concept of security, uh, from airport security to the foundation of what security is, what it means to have security. Remember the Colorado shooting? What was the first thing all the right wing people said? Oh, we need more guns. Why would there be more guns in the theater? As though that would have resolved anything. So right. there's a whole neuroses around security, and I'm going to make a fun of a whole bunch of stuff on this issue uh, and bring it back home again like I did in the prior episode to the, to the real foundation of reason, what what creates a safe world, what creates a safe society. And that's where I'm going to pick it up in October. A question from the audience. Uh, in the premiere episode, you were eating a sandwich. Was that a reference to anything specific or just, I mean, like, or were you just eating a sandwich? <laughs> Uh, I, I, when I was a student, uh, when I was a serious percussionist, you know, decades or so ago, uh, not quite that long, not that old, but uh, when I used to have to call up my these big teachers from like, the Juilliard School or the, or the uh, New York Philharmonic, I had one teacher for years, and, and I was so nervous when I called him up. That he got up to my message. He called me back, and he was he was eating a sandwich the whole time he was talking to me. And it stuck in my impression, because what he was doing is promoting this sort of casual idea. It was, his, it was his way of making me feel comfortable by smacking his lips and eating the sandwich comedically. And that stuck with me. So I, I kind of thought that was just an obnoxious thing to throw in there. I could just stand there and say something. But I thought the casualness of it was amusing. And, and a lot of people didn't like it at all, but I still find it pretty hilarious. Uh, I no, I thought it was fine. <laughs> I'm going to return with these gestures. There's certain gestures in, in the show that are going to come back, whether it's the, the pseudo-weird capitalist and the pink uh, creamsicle tuxedo or or the, uh, the the demo publican that, you know, trots over on the screen. There's certain uh, little things I'm going to basically build a vocabulary out of which will begin to 
create the gesture of this series as it goes on and make it uh, make it familiar. And I'm basically in the process of establishing those nuances now. Uh, another question from the audience. Um, are you going to do an episode on advertisement and consumerism? Of course. Of course. <laughs> How could I not? In fact, that was the that was the battle for the next show. I, I was going to originally go for advertising, but I realized I wanted to take a larger context with it and go after vanity, too. Because part of this show is not just you know pointing out problems that are happening structurally from the sort of top-down influence. It's also the, the gullibility of the public. And as much as I don't condemn people for what they believe per se, there is always an element where if you can get under their skin just enough, you can make them realize how foolish they've been. And you should do it very carefully. It's not something easy, uh, but I'm gesturing into that. So I have another episode that I've, I'm framed out that deals with advertising. It also deals with sanity in the culture and how we continue to propagate this horrid machine of advertising both from the top, but also with people's values. So I'll leave it right. at that. You know, and I totally, totally understand that. I mean, a lot of my values changed when I became involved with this movement, and it's one of the reasons why I sometimes, like, I got a fellow named Jacob Spiney on my Facebook group that I've been debating with. He's he's very, you know, very polite. He's not condescending like most free market people are. And, I you know, I just keep having to try to emphasize with him how much easier it'll be to produce things that we need if we don't, if we don't have things like fashion and, all of that, you know, making the the quote unquote calculation problem more complex. You know, I know for myself, uh, my attitude about fashion and all of that has changed so dramatically. I think the the final nail in the coffin for me was that that link I sent you that I I, I think ended up. I don't know if it was my influence or not, but I know I gave you the link to talk about that one uh, street in New York where they're selling the thousand dollar handbags and then they're stepping over the homeless people to get into the store. <laughs> I was just like oh, right. the final, final nail in the coffin for me. I was like, all right, screw fashion. <laughs> and that's well, – I, go I mean, ahead. I was just going to comment that the evidence that fashion is arbitrary, it's very clear just from the historical perspective. When you just look at look at what people have done historically. And if you remember, America was founded on kind of a sort of a pseudo-Puritan um, foundation. It was based on being conservative, but it wasn't until you – know, and you know this very well. I know you've commented on it. It wasn't until – kind of post, uh, well, pre-post-World War II that the whole consumption culture really took hold and you can easily track it where suddenly people's performance became less important than the appearance of their performance and what they wear. So unfortunate neuroses, but purely cultural, and I think it can be turned around. So you're going back to the economic calculation problem of this assumption that humanity has infinite wants and therefore you can't possibly find a rational way to organize things without the price mechanism. If you go on a long tangent about how farcical that really is, but mainly because of the fact that it's based on a very limited historical perspective, with that absolutely absent of any type of advanced psychological analysis with respect, or I should say sociological analysis, with respect to cultural change. And I think you know that well. No, for sure. And that's, I mean, I mentioned that actually in my Z Day presentation. Um, the very, it just, there's so much about history that people don't know, but. Especially the whole issue of Edward Bernays and the you know the the work they did to make us into a consumerist culture, essentially like the evil side of social engineering. Um, absolutely. Uh, another question here is: How many episodes do you think you're going to do, or is this just going to be kind of a regular project for the foreseeable future? Well, unless something happens and there's a break of time and I can speed the process up, uh, it's going to be bi-monthly, which means once every two months, and so that means the one season, if you will, will be six episodes, 
and I see no reason to, to put a put an end date on it. I'm just going to keep doing it as long as I have subject matter, as long as I have time, and see how it unfolds. I'm, it's, a, it's an experiment for me. It could it could exhaust itself rather quickly, but I have a feeling, given how neurotic the culture is, I have plenty plenty of fuel to, uh, to both make fun of things and also continue this tradition of really trying to inspire people to think differently, and that's really the whole point. So I answer your question. It's open-ended. Sure. No, and actually, it's something that I, I have to say was very nice about this, this series as opposed to the Zeitgeist series is that you, you've touched on humor, and I've found that uh, humor is definitely a good way to reach people who are not accustomed to thinking along political activist lines, you know, like there are people who wouldn't like say read an article about what George Bush was up to, but they might read a little cartoon, you know, in the newspaper making fun of something he was doing. You know, um, humor is definitely an interesting way to get through. I mean, that's why like I talked about that actually in the TCM Global episode with Katie Goodman, you know, about her approach being so funny, you know, um, that it and ironically, as simple as her song was, it was so telling to you know to how you know that whole situation about how people don't realize they're you know their part in everything being messed up. You know, but overall I think it's it's great to see you, you know, embrace the the comedy as a as a different side of things and I think that it'll definitely get you a lot more viewers in the long run. Um, you know, don't get me wrong, there's definitely something to be said for the serious tone, but uh, there are certain things I think, certain people especially that you're gonna reach better through entertaining comedic approaches to serious topics. I, I couldn't agree more. That's why in the initial kind of discussion of the work I say it's George Carlin meets Carl Sagan because they were both very influential on me, both in their communication style and, of course, in what they had to communicate. So it's you know my great influences, frankly, when I grew up were like Lenny Bruce and Bill Hicks and George Carlin and Richard Pryor, and I never really thought about what their influence actually actually um, implanted when during the course of the years of actually listening to that type of humor. And it's for those that have had the experience of listening to such artists, because they're not really preachy per se, but they're just they're just showing humanity. They're expressing their angst about what's happening in the world or in their personal lives. And some people were able to transfer with that very very well to me, and I think to many other people. I'm sure I'm not alone. And that's really where the inspiration to this show actually came from. If you go back and look at the early Lenny Bruce stuff, for those that are not familiar, he used to take on subjects such as racism when that was an ultimate taboo. You know, he he died, unfortunately, completely broke uh, because he had so many legal prosecutions against him for indecent exposure, if you will, because of his use of free speech and talking about the things that he did. Things that today, of course, would have been the smallest minor thing. You know, no one would ever, even if you would have it on mainstream television, the things that Lenny Bruce talked about. But back then, speaking of cultural evolution, the taboos were that much stronger. And that always stuck with me, which, again, is why this taboo nature, the, the taboo subject, excuse me, the... The issue of, quote, normality is always going to be a reoccurring theme in this show. So just to that a little bit more. Yeah, that's, that's the root of it. Yeah, that's, I think, uh, definitely something that people don't recognize is just how asinine the, the normality can really be. Like, I keep talking about my favorite episode of uh, V Radio was on the subject of sheeple. I was just talking about this episode to somebody, and it's just it's about going out and asking normal people who they're voting for and why and just how horrifying some of their answers are. And in some cases, just how it, it's like you're laughing when you want to be crying from how pathetic it is and how little people are really thinking about who they're voting for and why. Um, there's another question here from the audience. Uh, what does Peter think of the critics that say uh, culture in decline is more doom and gloom and less solution-oriented? Well, I, I think they should give it a chance. I, I And frankly, I, if you really 
listen to the monologues, um, that, like the end monologue, the, the monologues are the serious tone of this thing. I start, I'm probably going to bookend every episode with these monologues. And the end monologue actually goes right to the core of what I've been talking about, what many people have been talking about with respect to the necessity to change the groundwork of the system. Is this a platform, culture decline, for me to go into such a thing? No, it's not. It's to inspire people to, to, to start to delve into the subject matter as it's presented. But I'm not going to sit there and, you know, talk about you know, how to build a new society in a show that's designed to be satirical and just spark, spark created interest and to get under people's skin a little bit. I mean, there's always an interconnected element with everything I do. So those that see the show, they might realize I made a film series. They might go back and watch moving forward, and then, boom, they have every piece of, you know, solution that could possibly be crammed into one, one movie, you know. So I... Uh, I think people should have relaxed a little bit, realize that I'm trying to go for different angles here. And it's the same thing with the media festival that we just had. People say, well, what's the media festival? What's that about change, really? What, where are the blueprints? You know, they don't seem to understand that if we really want to inspire change, you have to take into account the various levels that everyone's at. You know, everyone's on different, different, different levels here in culture, and you can't just be intellectual with most of them. You have to start to, to inspire them to want to learn for themselves and expand their understanding. And that's exactly, if there's anything I do as an individual, it's that. That's, my, that's what I consider to be the artistry of what I do, uh, whether it's spreading lectures, whether it's doing the show, whether it's doing new films, whether it's participating in the media festival, whether it's performing my own performance art and all the other stuff. Uh, this is sort of the way I think about it. Some might disagree, but this is what I'm going to do. And if people don't like it, well, they're going to have to deal with it. You know, actually, uh, there's actually there are other documentary filmmakers that have kind of moved to the let's make a, a series of short film format, uh, like the the Rethink Afghanistan series uh, made by the same guy who made Out Foxed and a bunch of other really great documentaries is an example. He makes little 15 minute shorts now because the problem is forever evolving. So it, it almost makes more sense to make more small videos than spend a whole year talking about something and then you know, in many cases have a lot of information perhaps in your documentary that's not even relevant later. Um, now, exactly. there's another great question. Uh, what Do you think that the metacognition in your, your current series is something that people will pick up on? I'm sorry, did you say metacognition? Yeah, that's, that's what the word I saw, yeah, metacognition, the thinking approach behind uh, culture and okay. decline. Fancy way to think I would say that, again, it's an, it's an appeal to a completely different audience. It's an attempt to isolate, bracket in, and a certain number of people that really wouldn't have the patience, for example, to watch the films or to review lots of lectures or to read things that they really should be reading if they're interested in social change. So, I, yeah, I mean, I, there's, again, it's one of many different angles. Of this. I'm sorry, Neil, I'm getting a weird part of my end. If it comes down to it, we'll just have you disconnect and reconnect. It's just as easy as recalling. But um, so far, it sounds okay over here. Um, there have been some complaints in the audience, but uh, there have also been people who say it sounds fine, so it might just be a blog talk thing, because you sound fine when I'm talking to you. But yeah, um, in any case, uh, let me see. Uh, will there be an episode concerning the psychology and sociology of being an activist? Well, let me see if he got disconnected. Oh, yep, he did. He'll have to call back in. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, we've got another, like, 25 minutes or so left on this show, and I think that's probably... Okay. Yep, call back in.
sorry about the brief uh, station identification. You are listening to V Radio. If this is your first time listening to V Radio, please visit my website, V hyphen or V minus radio.org. There you can listen to more shows just like this one, or check out my must see TV list of free documentaries to watch on the internet that are pertinent to all activism. <laughs> That's me stalling for a moment while I try to figure out how to add him. But in the meantime, folks, um, I've got upcoming shows coming up and also some that you may not have listened to yet. Be sure to check out the archives. I've had some stuff I had to upload recently, uh, including the Katie Good episode that seems to be very popular both on B-Radio and TZM Global. Um, and he still hasn't tried. Let me try this. Okay, he's got that. All right, yeah, he said to wait a moment. In the meantime, um, last month we had a lot of great shows, so be sure to go back and um, check out the archives for that as well. I had Zahar Vardi, an Israeli activist, really awesome show, um, not to mention the filmmaker for The End of Poverty, and here we go. There we go. Welcome back. Hey, sorry about that. I think that was on my end. It was very okay. strange noise, it, and I had a hard time even connecting back for a second. But uh, excellent. Where, All right. Where were we? So, <laughs> okay, we were talking about. Um, let me see. Uh, will you be invite? Oh, actually, no. There was a good one up here. Uh, in most of the Zeitgeist films, you were not really featured in the video. What made you decide to make that? Just you know, the leap to actually like put you know, turning the camera on yourself and making that part of your presentation. Well, the, yeah, I would normally have been terrified to do something like that, and it's definitely not in my character. But ever since starting, excuse me, ever since I started to, to do lectures for the movement, then over the course of the past, I guess, three years, I've had an enormous number of talks in public that, again, I was, I was never, that was never anything that I did. Well, I did performance stuff before. I never gave speeches, and of course, was terrified to do so. Uh, something had just clicked. I was like, okay, I'm used to talking in front of cameras. I'm used to talking in front of people. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and do this as the as again as the kind of Carl Sagan esque style. I mean I knew I needed somebody to be there. There had to have been given the nature of the show and sort of a pseudo news show too where I go out and you know talk to people. I just made the leap and believe me, it was not an easy decision to make, but I'm getting more comfortable as I go along. That's excellent. That's excellent. Um now, let me see. There was another one here. Uh, will you be? Pl- do you plan on uh, featuring any other Zeitgeist Movement members in any future episodes? Well, this isn't really a Zeitgeist Movement work. I mean, this is this is going to work on multiple levels. The movement and everything you know that we're a part of is always behind it. Specifically, the train of thought, not necessarily the institutions. But obviously, I make that you know that parody joke referring to the movement as a satanic death cult, you know. <laughs> but it just but it goes within the territory, and I, of course, I want people to learn about the movement invariably. But uh, I don't know. It, it really depends on how the show expands. I, I'm pretty much not going to have a bias for the show. It's not gonna, it's not there to preach any institution or anything. You know, I, I showed Jock's book. You know, people need to read that. I to- point out Buckminster Fuller. I talk about you know Charles McKay. I'm planting seeds in the series. Uh, honestly, I can't imagine that I would go full throttle with, say, a zeitgeist movement element that's completely built into the show. It's really not what the show's about, just like I wouldn't go straight into Occupy or anything else. But it's always the overlay. When people watch this, I want them to think that, I want them to get the feeling that this is something that isn't imposing upon them. 
And when you talk about institutions, you know, you know this well, Neil. And you, right when you get to institutions, people feel like they're being barricaded in because everyone's terrified to be associated with institutions, specifically activist institutions. And again, I, I don't believe in institutions in many ways, so it's all about the train of thought, and I'm just planting this seed in the show. So to answer your question, if I bring on people in that context, it's a possibility, but probably not. Okay. Um, there's another question here. It's kind of long, so I'm going to ask the person if they can truncate it. But otherwise, um, <laughs> somebody's asking why the pink suit. Uh, the pink suit I got years ago for an event. It was all a big joke. And then in the course of making it, I, I realized that it would be kind of amusing uh, during that joke section where I, you know, I do the whole the whole taboo rejection thing with the communist or the conspiracy theorist or or the <laughs> utopianist. And I just realized that that suit would be hilarious to make this new uh, pseudo-capitalist character. And again, back to my vocabulary, I'm going to re- be returning with that character as the show goes on. He's sort of the antithesis. He's the, the arrogant manifestation. That's why I had that little pre-monologue at the very end, you know, chastising the viewer for supporting the very systems that oppress them. So I, the suit itself is just hilarious, and I thought it would be a fun thing to throw in there. No, I actually, uh, that's really cool then, is you kind of have, like, multiple characters for yourself within the storyline that people can look out for. I really like that. Um, yeah. Now, people are asking, uh, have you reached out to Joe Rogan to possibly promote uh, Culture and Decline on his podcast? Uh, I haven't asked him to promote it, but he did post it. There was uh, initial links that happened. He was aware of it. And, you know, I, I imagine I'll probably go back on his show at some point. But he was very supportive of it. And the communication I had is a quote by him on the main site, if people didn't see that. Very supportive. So if you go to cultureanddecline.com, you can see a series of quotes by all comedians, interestingly enough, socially conscious comedians. Uh, so, you know, I'll be in touch with Joe. We'll see. We'll see how it unfolds. I'd like to bring, you know, some characters like that in occasionally, like Lee Camp. I'm trying to get Lee Camp to be a part of it in a certain way. Uh, maybe even Katie Goodman. You know, anything that is, has a socially conscious but comedic bent, I'm really open to. And, of course, that's the gesture of the show. But uh, I'll be in touch with Joe. I have no idea if he would he'd be you know, into promoting it say, per se, but I know he's in support of it. So now uh, we have a very insistent listener who's asking this question. Uh, <laughs> who do you think you will vote for in 2012 and why? Well... As with as with anything, uh, there's always a level of degree. And even if I reject the election system, even if I reject the system we have overall, we're still bound within it. And given the two choices, Obama and, you know, I su- suspect Romney, I have no idea. I mean, I would write in a vote for Ron Paul just to make a poetic gesture, but, I, but uh, there's a caveat to that because there's plenty of things that Paul talks about that are not logical, that don't make any sense, but at least he's doing the best. He is the best, excuse me, of all of them that are there. He is he's just radical enough to see the inherent fallibility of certain U.S. practices and how they have to be shut down. Uh, that would be my gesture. But I'm certainly not going to vote for any of the major Republican or Democratic candidates. And if if I feel that there's literally no merit in, in any of the third parties, if you will, or the pseudo-independents, like I consider Ron Paul, frankly, regardless of you know his Republican affiliation, uh, if he was a run as an independent, I, might, I would you know, just do it as a gesture so those, those statistics would run up. You do what you can, so I don't want people to think that you should just abandon the system. We're stuck in this thing. We have to do what we can to improve it within the order, but we have to remember that it's going to take a much broader, out-of-the-box change to really affect things. So, 
No, for sure. That's uh, I figured it was actually going to be something like that. Now, um, my next question... Oh, wait a minute. Okay, so another one we have here is, uh, would you consider doing a response to the Aquarius Age of Evil documentary? I'm aware of that, and I think I watched maybe 10 minutes of it like two years ago and, and was laughing so hard on the floor that I couldn't bring myself to watch any more. I stomach would have erupted and I would have vomited out all of my intestines. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, uh, no. <laughs> there's a certain <laughs> threshold here. There's a certain threshold here of, of, of stuff you have to deal with when you when you're criticized by the external. And there, I'm happy to talk to critics that are willing to be at least respectful in their communication and be somewhat rational. But there's a, there's a drop off. And there's, if I had to respond to every single person out there that invented these insane theories and conspiracies behind me or whatever, if I had to actually engage that, I, I would have no time to literally sweep. I mean, that's how prolific this stuff is. So, I have no. to say, Aaron Moritz's work, uh, the Zeitgeist Movement Exposed video, is probably one of my favorite ways of addressing pretty much all of that kind of crap. Um, yeah. It, it <laughs> that's literally like one of my favorite Zeitgeist-oriented videos ever. Um and it's just, I guess they said every anti-TZM and their dog per, or person pushes it. I'd like to see PG destroy it. But I see what you're saying, though. There's so much of it to follow, it would be hard. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit here. Um, let's talk a little bit about how the uh, media festival went. Um, uh, what was Jimmy did? Were you happy with how it turned out? Oh, the Los Angeles event went far beyond uh, what any of us ever expected, both from the audience the energy, the performances. Uh, we were really very much in awe by the end. I, I'm still getting feedback from all the other parallel events. I can't say much on that right now. Everyone's been processing their stuff. But overall, the gesture's been great. On Wednesday, I have an interview with Hollywood Today, of all magazines. Uh, they're going to do a whole write-up on it. They've already done two, actually, and they're going to do a real serious one uh, with an interview with me. So they came, and they were really supportive. The examiner came. We haven't heard from them yet, but they did a pre-write-up. So both from a press standpoint and a standpoint of performance, I mean, the thing was magical. It was We were all just dumbfounded here in Los Angeles by the presence. It was like 700, 800 people came through this thing. It was a really community feeling. It was a seven-hour event. That's kind of intimidating. You, know? you say to your buddy, hey, you want to go to a seven-hour event? Uh, that's, that's a huge thing to take on, even if you didn't plan to stay that long. But the participation of all of these great artists from across the board, from you know, established guys like Roger Howard and Tim Krieg and Mark Maginson to, um, to of course, the no-names. We had, we had all sorts of new talent there as well. Uh, it was it really worked out beautifully, and I'm looking forward. There's four previews up already. You can go to ZeitgeistMediaFestival.org and see these quick previews. Um, they're just thrown together from the webcast. But uh, the, the full HD thing will be out hopefully within a few weeks. It takes forever to process that. It was shot with four cameras. It's seven hours. You can do the math and how much processing that is. We also got some great interviews, uh, great uh, – we had about 18 different nonprofits, you know, including the Zeitgeist Movement that were all out, you know, discussing and handing out information from, you know, helping the vets to uh, to broader social issues to environmental stuff. It really did exactly what we wanted it to do, and I think everyone that came to that event in Los Angeles left a little bit different, and I've yet to get one piece of negative feedback, so it's been, it was great. 
That's excellent. Yeah, it's um, I, I unfortunately was really busy that particular weekend. I didn't really get a chance to tune in as much as I would like. I I did get to watch some of uh, Danette's uh, interviews that went on while the whole thing was going on, and they were really good. Um, and I guess they've uploaded those to YouTube now. And uh, in addition, though, I mean, uh, you get you we're getting just such great guests there. I mean, I know a little bit about the lineup, obviously. Uh, you know, Ben Stewart uh, and his band. I actually went back and watched uh, the, the 2011 Media Festival uh, performance they did, and it was so amazing. I was like, yeah. this is great. You guys need to make this into a live album. It sounds so good. Like, they were just so on, you know. I mean, just like, wow. <laughs> um, you know, and it, obviously just the diversity of the different people who showed up. It was it was weird to see, like, I guess Jordan Maxwell was out there somewhere, which I found a little ironic and... um uh, in addition to that, uh, you know, all the other, like obviously people like Katie Goodman, you know, like we talked about her earlier, but um, yep, she's amazing. Yeah, she is. Uh, yeah. And uh, I actually managed to get her to to check out some Zeitgeist stuff. I don't know if you did you did you get a chance to tune into my interview with her? Um, actually, no. Unfortunately, I didn't. I was right in the heat of all the stuff happening, and I I literally have gone nonstop for the past couple of weeks. So, but I'll check it out for sure. She didn't comment on the movement, though. You can go to cultureanddecline.com and see the comments she made about the show. And she actually brings up the movement, which is very complimentary, uh, in reference to the show and the need for change. So she's, uh, yeah, she's shown a direct support, which is really nice. Excellent, excellent. Now, what are we looking at for the future here as far as, uh, like, you know, uh, you, you, you mentioned what the next episode of Culture and Decline is about. Do you got any other, like, highlights of what's coming up next? Frankly, I, I'm trying to stabilize. I've been going so hard for so long. Even, you know, my mother was in town and in Los Angeles to this, and she just said to me, she's like, yeah, you know, you haven't stopped since 2007. And that's very true. It's been literally just nonstop ever since the, every, you know, the first film came out, and then it just started to spread and multiply in different projects. Uh, the onset of the movement, all the lectures, I, I, it's all a big blur. So what I'm doing now even though there's tons of projects that are happening with the movement that require a resolution fairly quickly, which I'm, I'm moving forward with, I'm trying to balance things out where the new films, the new film series that I'm doing uh, starts to starts to emerge, and then the culture decline thing stabilizes it too. Where, in other words, I'm having a film I'm creating, I have culture decline, and then I have some some general lectures that I do. So I'm trying to get over a hump is what I'm trying to say with all these backed up projects. I'm not going to take anything else on until I finish all this other stuff over the course of the next, say, two months. And then I'm hoping to find some, you know, decent mental and physical health because, frankly, I don't know if people, you know, people that know me know this very well, but I'm, it's just I'm constantly in a horrid state of health. It's really bad. I feel like I'm 60 years old and I'm, you know, I'm in my mid-30s. So I have to do something personally. I just say that as an aside. But there's tons of other things that are, you know, the Global Redesign Institute is a monstrous project that, I've been talking with a lot of people about that want to get involved. That's going to be a defining project of the movement. Uh, there's a there were actually people asking about stuff. that. If you want to elaborate, I'm sorry. But, yeah, I was just saying. Oh, go. yeah, sure. The, what Global Redesign Institute, I mean, everyone in the movement has been doing a really great job talking about the issues and engaging the public, just like, you know, the Media Festival, the Zeitgeist Days, all of, our, all of our lectures, your lectures. Um, we're building upon this train of thought very well, but it has to get to a point where it's put into practice on some level, technically, that can begin to show the world what's possible. And I don't mean just reading a book by, you know, a great author like Jacques or Buckminster Fuller. There has to be something more tangible. And I don't mean models. I mean something that people can see online or at a conference 
that really shows them the benefits of applying modern scientific understanding technically. So the value work, if you will, the value in educational work of the movement is what it is. We've been doing a great job with that. But there's got to be a project that really shows a redesign. And the Global Redesign Institute is a virtual project, at least initially, that is going to enable a Wikipedia type of digital interface that brings on engineers, scientists, artists, and thinkers using really clear source reference material to reconstruct the whole planet. Now, what I mean by that, it sounds ambitious, is like, say, I'm in Los Angeles, the Global Redesign Institute chapter, if you will, or the sub-project of the existing Los Angeles chapter, they will work to redesign the Los Angeles area. So what does that mean? So we could take desalinization plants, put them off the coast of Los Angeles. You could put vertical farms straight up, you know, aeroponics, hydroponics, straight from those desalinization cross-nutrient uh, pollination, if you will, from the actual water itself because there's plenty of nutrients. You don't need all the hydrocarbon-based fertilizers. And you could take that one simple point and show how the, oh, I don't know, 80,000 homeless and starving people in Los Angeles don't need to be that way with a very simple existing technical system. And you can take the stuff, you know, like from the guy from Columbia University. I'm giving this as one example, by the way. So the, the guy in Columbia University that, that did this whole vertical farm revolution, I tried to have him in uh, moving forward, by the way, but apparently Sting owns all of the video rights to this guy, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> so so you, can, you can expect Sting to be releasing something about vertical farming at some point in the future because the guy wouldn't be interviewed because of that contract he had with Sting. Anyway, uh, we'll, we'll leave that to the wind. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the entire point is to show how we can change things technically and what the fruits of that will bring. And when you eventually get this to the point of having conferences and all around the world, we're talking real conferences like you'd see in a hotel where people go into a room and they're showing how the entire infrastructure of their local community can be changed. And here's the blueprint. Here is the scientific method applied technically to their region, and here are the benefits. And if you want to talk about transition, this is where the seed has to be planted. We can talk about city systems and abstraction. We can talk about how to engineer a house. But until it's actually put into, into practice in a region context, where the people can see it there virtually, then you know we're not going to accomplish much. That's what I'm. That's what I'm hoping for with this, and it's the kind of landmark concept that has been talked about before. You know, you remember Buck, Mr. Fuller's World Games. He he was able to chronal, he was able to chronologically kind of go through all the resources of the planet and describe the potentials of it. This is building upon that. It's building upon the Venus Project concept, but it's making it something so tangible, so directly applicable that you can't deny it. It suddenly becomes materially tangible, is my point, and, and completely sourced. So I, I hope I've, that tangent makes sense. I'm going to start back from the beginning. It's a Wikipedia type of thing where anyone can contribute, but it has to be clearly sourced. Right. So once you build these layers in Google API, because it's basically going to be one massive virtual map that you can zoom into on different regions, and that's where each team in the region of, of technicians and thinkers are really just chronicling uh, the actual resources ultimately, and the technological ability, those are where they hone in. You can see those things in development. You can use the thought process, the basic reasoning of why the system would be the way it is. And, and as an aside, you begin to really see how opinion gets thrown out the window. If you want a sustainable society technically, forget the human condition, forget all the debate about human nature and all of that stuff. Just put it to the side and think firmly on the grounds of what is technically possible based on modern scientific understandings that we have now. doesn't mean it's not going to change because, as we know, uh, all technology and scientific awareness will evolve. 
but this this is a groundbreaking type of thing that uh, the the world desperately needs to start to consider if we want to start to resolve things technically uh, and really resolve the major problems that we're faced with at this time. So I'll stop my tangent there. As you can tell, I could go on and on about the different permutations of it, and it can be a very simple project or it can be a very, very, very complex project. It really comes down to how it works out. There's going to be a nonprofit associated with it. Uh, we're going to have to get funding involved in this. There's just no way you can engineer this type of thing in the later stages without such such influence because we're going to have to mm -hmm. bring in real people that have really serious programming capabilities to make this thing come to life. But uh, that's that's for more conversation in the future, but that's definitely a very serious project on the horizon. No, that sounds great, actually. I mean, um, especially, I mean, we do get a lot of criticism about the issue of the tangible. Do you think something like this could ever develop into like uh, sustainable living projects or, you know, like eco-villages or anything to that effect? Yes, in part, but the, the beauty of this is not about what we what is affordable. It's not about the existing system at all. It's completely virtual. So point being is that while eco-villages and certain, you know, certain orientations that we see around the world today that are trying to get off the grid, while those might have a place, that's not what we're going for. We want high technological application based on what's possible at its highest level to show that if we really made this leap out of the monetary market economy, boom, this is what we could do. I think it's misleading when you talk to people that are doing, you know, low, I call it low-fi sustainability. You know, like you have high-fi high technology, you have low-fi, sort of like an analog cassette recorder versus, you know, an MP3 player or whatever. Uh, the lo-fi solution is needed, and I, I agree with people that are interested in that, but it's not a solution in the long run, as we've talked about at length in the movement. Building little primitive cities to try and, you know, salvage whatever's happening will help in the interim, but it's not going to help in the long run. So this project is specifically for about what's possible at its highest level. Highest level, forget money, forget everything. Resources, of course, are taken into account, uh, placement, logical assessment, why, where would you design, for example, a factory? So if we wanted to produce, produce going back to the food example, you know, why do we have globalization where we have all this stuff being transported all over the world? It's a huge waste of everything. When you could easily line this stuff up beautifully, region by region. You know, just as an aside, because I'm on this tangent, people will always talk about us as a globalist kind of uh, institution, right? Because you want to respect the global symbiosis of the Earth system and the natural law system. Uh, and as I pointed out in that World Summit lecture I gave recently, the only possible level of sustainability that can be called sustainable is the level that takes into account the most the most brand system perceivable or relevant. So, you know, the Earth system is probably the most relevant layer there. We don't need to go all the way out to the Milky Way, uh, but we, we do need the Earth system and its tangible uh, understanding of it for us to think about things on the level of true sustainability. So with that understood, the Global Redesign Institute is going to take that entire approach, and it will always it will be a global thing, but it will also be local. So getting off the grid as an individual house has its merit. You're respecting the symbiosis because you have all this energy around. Eventually, you'll get cities off the grid. The cities will be off the grid because they don't need to be connected as far as their production and distribution, at least on the basic level for sustainability of the society in that region. Again, it gets very complicated because you keep going outward, you realize how interdependent things are, but it's a lot less global-oriented than people realize on the sense of structure. So you don't need, like, one electrical system that goes over the entire globe. You know what I'm saying, Neil? I'm, 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 hmm? trying, to feed into, I'm trying to feed into a lot of the fears that I always hear about from people who they think that 
that a global resource-based economy is one big, you know, web of interconnected thing that you can't possibly escape from and there's no independence. The great real revelation of modern technological ability is that almost everything can be independent in its own right if it respects the larger symbiosis of natural law. Just like sure. you can have a you have solar panels on your house, you don't need to be connected to a grid. Uh, that's right. But you're respecting the natural causality and sustainable it's the law of sustainability, if you want to give it a term, that says this is the most efficient process for this structure to be to be utilized, less negative retroactions, all those sustainability factors that come into play. But uh, anyway, that's for a larger conversation. It actually reminds me of uh, something Brandy Hume had to say in one of her videos uh, when somebody was discussing, like, you know, the possibility of some elite or whatever taking over the, the, the RBE system. And she did something really humorous and, you know, basically just, like, you know, shows, like, the cities and all that, and then you hear somebody speaking in a loudspeaker says, just so you know, we could turn off all of your blah, 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 but we won't yeah. because you already have all the knowledge to take care of yourselves. So all we will do is play really annoying music over the loudspeaker. You know, just to kind of point out that, uh, you know, I honestly feel that the best uh, protection against fascism or any level of control is education and critical thinking. Um and that's actually something that, you know, I argue with capitalists about frequently. I was like, there's still a system for an elite to control capitalism. If anything, especially if you completely liberate it to a free market, it's easier. It's not harder, you know, and it's hard to get them to to admit to that, obviously. But overall, you know, it's it's an ongoing argument that I think in some cases, some of these people are so dogmatic, you're never going to get through to them. And that's what I've had to tell people sometimes. But in any sure. case, uh, this has been well, an awesome. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to make one more comment on on that sure. issue that people fear of control. It, they're not taking into account the process. And if you really were thinking sustainably, and especially with what's emerged to um, excuse me, what's emerged with respect to neighborhood neighborhood sustainability. What does that mean? You have energy. You have energy. You have water. You have access to food. All of that can be localized very, very efficiently with modern technology. You don't need a lot of the overlays of control. And back, and I'll say one final thing with respect to your point about capitalism. If I was a diehard capitalist and I wanted to maintain control, I couldn't think. In other words, if I was a diehard controlling mechanism person, meaning that I wanted to have control of things, I couldn't think of a better scam to impose upon a world culture than a, a scam that says. You're free to do whatever you want as long as you have money to do it. And we're going to define that freedom as the freedom to do anything we want with money. Therefore, we're using that very mechanism of monetary freedom to control you. And that's the side that they don't, they don't get. They don't seem to understand that. And I made that point in culture and decline as well. The very oppressing system of monetary control that is you know, pushed forward by these market guys that say, oh, this is freedom. Otherwise, it'll be tyranny. Otherwise, they don't... They don't really understand that it's a psychological trick. It's it's absurd right. to put this game put put this game forward because immutably there's no balance. Balance is impossible. So imbalance has to be there for it to work. And with imbalance comes control and manipulation. So I'll leave it at that. For sure. Um, actually, it's actually kind of a strategy that I've taken with even like former Libertarian Party presidential candidates that I've managed to bring on board to the idea was just to point out to them that they're all about personal responsibility, yet they're completely at the whims of their employers or, you know, other people even that they have to trade with or whatever. Yeah, you have the freedom to trade, but 
as soon as you make it about that and you're not self-sufficient, then you know anybody whom you have to trade with automatically has power over you. You've you've created a a, a, you know, a power mechanism for yourself, and then the more consumerist we've made our our societies, and the more job-oriented and the less like we take care of ourselves. The, the more and more power we hand over to the consumerist system and take away from, you know, ourselves. And that's why I said, you know, I usually try to tell people like that. I'm like, well, you know, are you okay with, you know, off the grid living and off the grid? And I was like, they're like, oh, well, yeah, that's like the ultimate freedom. I'm like, okay, well, we're talking about the world getting off the grid. We're talking that's about right. the world being sustainable. We're talking about the world producing for itself. And it, when you give it that angle and you and you and you bring up the non-aggression principle that obviously we're with is it, it usually disarms them at least enough even if they don't necessarily agree with you they're at least not like running around like calling us communists or saying that we're their enemy or something so um there's yeah. been a if you have just a few more moments um there was sure, one question sure. that's been repeated quite a bit in the uh, chat room is uh are you going to do a show about education um, and have you considered uh, the possibility? I mean, like, have you ever looked at the possibility of any kind of uh, media for children to help teach them these ideas? Oh, interesting. Uh, as far as culture and equality, yeah, uh, education definitely on the list. And there's naturally a massive spectrum that can be discussed, uh, specifically when it comes to conditioning, because most education really isn't education. It's just a it's a placating process to groom the human being to take the system, sort of like the matrix, if you will. So, you know, on that level, absolutely, I want to do a lot of stuff on that. As far as a project like, you know, targeting kids, I think, uh, you know, TZM Education and James Phillips has done the best work on that level, even though I know it hasn't been as publicized. Uh, it would be great if people would come out and make very simple, uh, digestible, grade school style books about this type of idea because frankly uh, they get it faster than anybody else I, i've never had a faster conversation than talking to say a 10 year old that understands because they're not groomed and, and so polluted by the system they haven't been forced into the market economy yet and they really understand these fundamental one plus one equals two sustainability practices like that so i that's something that would be wonderful i haven't thought about that specifically but anyone out there that wants to try that that would be incredible. So I can't do everything, but I would certainly urge anyone out there to just make you know, make children the books. That would be amazing. And make like a make like a Mr. Rogers type show that that dealt with those issues specifically for kids. Uh, but I will drop uh, Jim Phillips' name one more time because he has been doing things like that in his local community uh, in London, and he has been writing stuff uh, along those lines as well. So. Yeah, I have to say my own experience with my children, especially not ever allowing them to watch advertising, I notice a drastic difference in my, my children's values over the other kids they they meet. And, you know, like when a child flips out about not getting a specific item that they've seen advertised, my daughter will look at them like they need to go to a mental hospital. Like, what's the matter right. with you? You know, like it's so crazy to her. And um, it, it takes a big step, honestly, about... You know, you want to know how to educate your kids, you know, pay close attention to what, you know, not to let them be educated into, you know, don't let them watch commercials, don't let them, you know, it's like Assuming Kids is a great movie about that, I don't know if you've seen it, but, um, no. but yeah, Consuming Kids is about uh, advertising targeted at children, and it is utterly terrifying, I mean, they're they're even putting devices on kids' heads, not not in their heads, but on their heads to watch brain reactions to certain colors and, you know, to certain sounds. And, I mean, when they're finished, they could brainwash a child to like anything. And, 
you can sure. tell that it's it's a really hollow thing because you give the child the item and they're interested for about 10 minutes and then they go right back to being bored and doing whatever they would do otherwise so that you've basically just kind of been nag factored into buying a product but um Thank you very much for being on as long as you have, Peter. I know we went a little over just because I wanted to make sure you had a chance to finish about that other thing that I was not aware of, that other project you were working on. Um, and thanks for being on. And uh, you know, well, My pleasure. Uh, as you know, I can just keep rambling, but it's a good thing you cut me off, frankly, because I do a lot of other things I, <laughs> I need to do. Well, but well, otherwise, yeah. I would probably just keep rambling with you. But uh, no, thanks, Neil. I appreciate you having me on. I'm sorry it took so long. And no, uh, no. I'll have uh, – yeah, I'm actually going to do the radio show – Again, this Wednesday, or not again, but uh, I haven't done it in a while. Uh, so if anyone wants to listen to that, I'm going to present some new essays with respect to the movement that I've been working on. So it should be should be informative. Let's plug that. All right. Well, that's cool. awesome, and thanks again, Peter. I was just, for your sake, because you said you only had 45 minutes, <laughs> I can listen yeah, to you I, talk I, for I hours. Yeah, I do need, I do need to run, but, uh, but All right. again... I always like talking to you so we can ramble on and on. But take care, Neil, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Yep, thanks again. Well, Bye. that was Bye. Peter Joseph. Oh, thanks again. And, uh, <laughs> that was Peter Joseph, folks, the filmmaker for the Zeitgeist Film Series, along with a lot of other great projects that uh, you know many of my listeners have checked out before. Uh, if this is your first time listening to V Radio, please just check out my website. I have other interviews with Peter uh, ben Stewart, Chimatic and Esoteric Agenda, the filmmakers behind um, Outfox, Rupert Murdoch World, well, <laughs> Rupert Murdoch's War in Journalism, uh, The End of Poverty. Uh, lots of other great documentary filmmakers have been interviewed here on V Radio. Lots of other activists. Um, so check out the website. Go to the archives section. And you can check out as many you know episodes there as you like. It is a listener-supported effort. So if you liked what you heard today, please consider a donation. You can do that on the website by clicking Donate. And um, thank you for everybody who's tuned in. I will leave you with some parting words from the Film Network. Profanity uh, warning. Starring the mad prophet of the airways, Howard Broadcasting systems, and he died at 11 o'clock this morning of a heart condition. And woe is us, we're in a lot of trouble. So, a rich little man with white hair died. What has that got to do with the price of rice, right? And why is that woe to us? Because you people and 62 million other Americans are listening to me right now. Because less than 3% of you people read books. Because less than 15% of you read newspapers. Because the only truth you know is what you get over this tube. Right now, there is a whole, an entire generation that never knew anything that didn't come out of this tube. This tube is the gospel, the ultimate revelation. This tube can make or break presidents, popes, Prime Ministers, this tube is the most awesome goddamn force in the whole godless world. And woe is us if it ever falls into the hands of the wrong people. And that's why woe is us that Edward George Ruddy died. Because this company is now in the hands of CCA, the Communication Corporation of America. 
There's a new chairman of the board, a man called Frank Hackett, sitting in Mr. Ruddy's office on the 20th floor. And when the 12th largest company in the world controls the most awesome goddamn propaganda force in the whole godless world, who knows what shit will be peddled for truth on this network. So you listen to me. Listen to me. Television is not the truth. Television is a goddamn amusement park. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, lion tamers, and football players. We're in the boredom-killing business. So if you want the truth, go to God. Go to your gurus. Go to yourselves. Because that's the only place you're ever going to find any real truth. But man, you're never going to get any truth from us. We'll tell you anything you want to hear. We lie like hell. We'll tell you that uh, Kojak always gets the killer and that nobody ever gets cancer in Archie Bunker's house. And no matter how much trouble the hero is in, don't worry, just look at your watch. At the end of the hour, he's going to win. We'll tell you any shit you want to hear. We do it in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You eat like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. All right, I'll turn it off.